So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode contains some discussions of suicide, as well as mentions of physical and sexual abuse, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. About a thousand kilometers north of Toronto, on the coast of James Bay, sits the remote Cree community of Attawapiskat. It's where Mike Kustachin was born and raised. Like many people in Attawapiskat, his family had a close connection with the land and to the water that surrounds them. I remember one time an elder visited our area from out west, and uh, he described us as the, the water people of James Bay because we lived by the ocean, and we lived by a river, and we lived by the, the lakes. We lived by the swamp, creeks, and that's how he, we, he described us as the water people. The Hudson Bay lowlands, which surround the community, is one of the biggest wetlands in the world, an ecological marvel. We have uh, huge chunks of peatlands, swamp, and oxygen, I guess, for the world. We're the second largest peatlands in the world. Over the last decade, Attawapiskat has become famous across Canada and around the world. Not for the natural beauty that surrounds it, or for the Cree culture of the people who live there. Instead, It's become a byword for the toxic legacy of Canadian colonialism and a place that has suffered crisis after crisis after crisis in just a few years. First, there was the schoolhouse, namely the fact that there wasn't one. Late 90s, I was condemned. They found out there was a spill of diesel under the school. So they demolished it because of the health hazard. So instead, children had to learn in cramped portables with none of the facilities that a normal school has. And then there was housing. There was far too little of it. And even what existed was often shoddily constructed. The houses were poorly built. It was 900 square feet per home. And that's like 24 by 36 home with a three-bedroom house. And it was cheap material that they were using. The cheapest material you can buy from the home hardware store. Cheap thin walls and insulation. The foundation was built poorly. The situation got so bad that in 2011, the Red Cross was sent in. The International Red Cross lands in the Attawapiskat First Nation tomorrow, one month after the community declared an emergency and asked for help. The drinking water became so polluted that another state of emergency had to be declared. 
Now, tests show that the tap water contains potentially harmful levels of chemicals, which are actually a byproduct of the process used to disinfect the water. And most heartbreaking of all, there was a suicide crisis. More than 100 people attempted to take their own lives in less than a year, in a community of only 2,000. The Oxford First Nations chief, Bruce Tashis, declared the state of emergency for suicide. We had 11 attempts in one night, and I think that declaration is still open. It wasn't closed, so we still have issues of suicide in the community. And just two months ago, my, my niece took her own life. We still have issues right now with suicide. Many Canadians are familiar with the rolling crises in Attawapiskat. But what they may not know is that just 90 kilometers outside of the community is a diamond mine owned by the most famous mining company in the world. The Victor Mine, owned by De Beers, has operated there from 2008 to 2019, the exact time period covering all of these crises. So why is it that a community that's literally sitting on diamonds is so poor? And why did the government and De Beers do so little to help them through? Attawapiskat is a community that has been put through so many hardships. So when De Beers proposed a diamond mine, many people had hoped it would make their lives better. But things only got worse in the years since the mine was built. How can a community sitting on so much wealth still be so impoverished? And what can be done to make sure that this doesn't happen again? I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. The diamond engagement ring. How else could two months' salary last forever? A diamond is forever. De Beers. Most people don't know the names of the world's richest mining companies, but the one exception is De Beers. De Beers has been called the most successful cartel in modern history, and it's practically synonymous with diamonds. Diamonds had once been incredibly rare, with only a few pounds of the stones mined out of the ground every year. But in 1866, huge diamond deposits were discovered in South Africa. A number of small companies began to extract the gemstones, but they soon faced a problem. There were so many diamonds coming out of the ground that prices were sure to drop precipitously. So the companies all came together to form De Beers with the intention of fully controlling the industry. It was led by Cecil Rhodes, the man for whom the Rhodes Scholarship is named after, and one of the key architects of the mass disenfranchisement of black South Africans. And for more than a century, De Beers held a virtual monopoly on the diamond trade. They did this by restricting supply and by stoking up demand. 
It was De Beers that helped popularize the diamond engagement ring with a multi-decade marketing campaign centered around their famous slogan, a diamond is forever. But in the 1990s, the ground began to shift under the company. De Beers was discovered to have profited from so-called blood diamonds that helped drive conflicts in Africa. Here's Andrew Bone, the former head of public affairs for De Beers, speaking in a documentary. De Beers itself did not buy any Sierra Leone diamonds from 1985 onwards. But clearly, there were problems in terms of those diamonds from that country getting into certain channels, being smuggled, and getting onto the international markets. And their stranglehold on supply was being threatened, too. In 1994, huge diamond deposits were discovered in the Northwest Territories. So it was Canadian companies that broke the De Beers monopoly. And those diamonds were marketed to the world as conflict-free. That combination of factors led De Beers to make a momentous decision. For the first time in their history, they would mine diamonds outside of Africa. And the first place that they would do this was just outside of a small community nestled next to James Bay, Attawapiskat. I first started hearing about the De Beers mine in the Attawapiskat First Nation 2005, so 16 years ago. My name is Vicki Lane, and I'm a filmmaker based here in Toronto. And I made a feature film called After the Last River. She heard about the mine from her father, David Lane. He's an ecotoxicologist with a focus on mercury and fish. And he became concerned about the mine around that time when they were just talking about it. It was a very experimental type of mine for that kind of land base and uh, was very worried about what the impacts of, of the mine would be, especially in terms of mercury. Vicky decided to work on a film about the mine and its potential environmental impact. So she went up to Attawapiskat to begin work. The only way you can get to Attawapiskat is to fly. I would fly to Timmins and then fly to Attawapiskat. And you're usually taking an eight-seater plane and you hopscotch between several Cree communities that are along the coast of James Bay. It is a huge swamp. It's like one of the largest kind of wetlands in the world. And when you fly over in the summertime across the James Bay lowlands, it's like these little, it's like these little pools of water. It's kind of almost like a sponge. It's literally a sponge. And a, a one way of thinking about what De Beers was doing with their mine, it's like mining a sponge in a bathtub. So you're doing an open pit mine in a sponge that's like constantly feeding water into it. So it's, it's actually quite complicated to execute. She went in wanting to make a film about the trade-offs between protecting the environment and providing much-needed jobs to the people of Attawapiskat. I wanted to go and, and make a film that evaluated specifically that aspect, the cost and the benefit of the mine. But being in the community, the elders that I'm trying to talk to them about the mine and what their concerns are about the rivers and, and where they would hunt. And they're like, uh, do you want to come in and see my house? And I'm like, sure, I'll come in and see your house. And I'm there talking to them about the mine and they're living with black mold, like horrific black mold in their house. And I was like, oh, my God, like the layers of environmental racism that these remote communities face is staggering. The problems facing Attawapiskat far predated the arrival of De Beers. The Attawapiskat First Nation was a signatory to Treaty 9, one of the numbered treaties signed by the federal government and indigenous nations. 
but the terms of the written text were heavily weighted towards Canada. It opened the area up to resource development and only provided $4 a year in payments to band members. And that $4 is not tied to inflation. Many children from Attawapiskat were kidnapped by the government and taken to St. Anne's Indian Residential School. The abuse that children suffered at St. Anne's is absolutely horrific. Physical and sexual abuse was rampant. In the 1950s and 60s, children were routinely tortured with an electrical chair the school had built. Mike Kustachin, who you heard from at the top of the episode, says that the high suicide rate in the community is a legacy of residential schools. The root causes are from the intergenerational trauma. Residential school, the government built residential schools. It was government-funded. So many of the legends and stories were forgotten, and the ceremonies were banned. St. Anne's was closed in 1979, and a few years earlier, an elementary school was built in Attawapiskat. But immediately, there were problems. The school in Attawapiskat had a diesel spill for decades that was not remediated. The diesel seeped into the ground and contaminated the whole building. And despite promises, the federal government did nothing. The dropout rate was very high. If you're going to school and you're getting a nosebleed every day because of the fumes, are you going to want to keep going to school? 17 years later, the school was officially condemned and students were moved to portables. Housing was also poorly built and hard to come by. Many families packed into small shacks, sometimes dozens of people. And the homes were often falling apart, rotting from the inside. And unemployment was a major problem, with rates significantly higher than in southern Canada. So when De Beers came to town in the early 2000s, Attawapiskat had already been suffering from years of abuse and neglect at the hands of the government. And the promise of a diamond mine was enticing for many people in Attawapiskat. It was fast-tracked, actually, through the promise of jobs. Everyone was like, yeah, $6 billion to the province of Ontario. We can't wait. Get started. First diamond mine in Ontario. A lot of enthusiasm. The communities were desperate for development. There was concern, but there was also a desperate need for jobs. One of the first steps for De Beers to get their diamond mine built was to get approvals from the provincial and federal governments. So when De Beers came along, a lot of people were blinded by the glitz of the diamonds. I was frankly shocked at how many regulators kind of lost sight of their job as regulators. And they were so, the glitz and the, and the wow factor really got them. I'm Anna Baggio with the Wildlands League. I'm uh, the conservation director for the charity. Wildlands League first got involved when they heard about the road that De Beers would need to build to support the mine. It's kind of like the worst road possible. It's in the, you know, be cutting right through the lowlands, right through caribou habitat. And then we were just kind of in a bit of a shock that, oh my God, what is this project proposing? And what is this road? The mine went through multiple different environmental assessments from both levels of government. But Anna notes just how confusing this all can be for the people affected. If you don't have the time to read thousands of pages and understand you know, what, what it means, because you actually need to translate the language. What's written in environmental assessment is not really self-evident to, to regular people. One of the concerns that was raised early on was the same one that led Vicky Lane to be interested in the mine, methylmercury. Methylmercury is a dangerous neurotoxin that was already present in the area, and a mining project risked putting much more of it into the water. The problem with methylmercury is that 
it bioamplifies up the food chain. And so it gets worse and worse and worse. We need a stricter guideline to protect wildlife all the way up the food chain, including humans. And the Attawapiskat River already had high levels of methylmercury, to the point where the government advised that children and women of childbearing age avoid eating fish from there. So we didn't think that there was much room for there to be additional loading of methylmercury in the system. But both levels of government were keen to see the Victor mine be built. The provincial government even introduced a system of royalties on diamond extraction, a potentially lucrative new revenue stream. The other challenge I've been finding over the years is that it's really development first. It's about mining first. Like, mining is the best and highest end use. After they got government approvals, then De Beers had to come to agreements with the First Nations in the area. At the time, there were no laws dictating how mining companies and First Nations should work together. Here's Vicky Lane again. So De Beers and Attawapiskat are left to work out their impact benefit agreement, which is really just a business contract. And these agreements are done individually with every affected First Nation. One criticism was that communities were kind of put against each other rather than negotiating a regional impact assessment where it's transparent to all communities. So if you were at Awapiskat, you don't know necessarily what Kasechewan's deal was. And so these IBAs are negotiated without the intervention of the government or the province. Mike Kustachin remembers how these negotiations went at Attawapiskat. So there was countless meetings. The beers, they had their team consist of Indigenous people plus their lawyer. And so they met the chief of council separately, the beers. And after their meetings, that's when the, the community met with the beers. Mike was one of the community members most skeptical of the De Beers mine. We had some concerns, environmental concerns, you know. What would happen to the waterfall, the fish, and the migrated caribou? And they questioned what exactly Attawapiskat would get in return for the mine. Somebody brought up the issue of, okay, if you're going to build a mine behind our backyards, can we get housing developed, built for the members? That didn't happen. Mike believes that during these negotiations, the knowledge of elders was often dismissed and that many people didn't have a solid understanding of the issues. We didn't know all that technical information, who's going to issue the permit. We didn't, we didn't know that. We were just clueless, I guess. In case we didn't ask the right questions also, when the beers met separately with the people, it seems like everything was rushed. At the end, the proposed benefits to Attawapiskat came down to a few general points, though the details were secret. The deal mostly was just about jobs, a certain amount in terms of business contracts, training, and then there's a trust fund, which has been kind of reported for the life of the mine that they would pay about $2 million a year. So that works out to sort of less than $1,200 per person in the community. In 2005, there was a referendum of Attawapiskat band members. I guess the majority rules, there was a, about 270 or 280 said yes to the mine. And about... Seven or eight, said no. Mike voted no, but the majority ruled, even though it was a small percentage of the total band that participated in the vote. The Victor Diamond Mine was going to be a reality. Construction began in 2006, and the mine was operational by 2008. Something that surprised a lot of people, 
was just how quickly everything had been built. In Attawapiskat, schools, housing, and basic infrastructure was left to rot for years. And then you have a mining company that built a billion-dollar mine ahead of schedule. How many things get finished ahead of schedule? And just as the Victor mine was becoming operational, many people in Attawapiskat were beginning to feel like they hadn't been given a fair deal. The benefits to the community and all the promised jobs and development just hadn't materialized. Some of the reasons why the community was upset was because of their issues with drinking water and lack of housing. And De Beers was like, that was never part of the deal. We are not in the business of building schools or homes or infrastructure. De Beers spoke about the fact that they were giving out many contracts to companies owned by band members. De Beers will say, oh, we, we spent several hundred million dollars in contracts to solely owned or joint venture companies, but you never really get the breakdown of how much of an ownership the band member had, if it's a band member that still lives in the community. Many Attawapiskat band members, around 100, were getting jobs at the mine. But the problem was that many of them didn't actually live in Attawapiskat itself. There's a lot of Attawapiskat band members that left the community because of the school situation, the housing situation. They didn't have the homes or, or health care. They might have had a family member that needed help. So they were flying into the mine, but they weren't ever stopping in the community. So theoretically, those wages that someone with a job also doesn't come back into the community. I guess there was agreement to hire the Attawapiskat First Nation members first. And they kept an eye on the ratio jobs that was promised. And the beers tried to keep that ratio up to bar. But it seems like from the community, there was only like out of those jobs that were created, that officer only had like 5% workforce on site. And there was just minimum, minimum jobs, housekeeping, maintenance, janitor. There was no jobs for supervisor positions till later on. The majority of people, the workforce, were flown in also to the remote diamond mine just north of Timmins. So there was a charter from Timmins directly to the mine. And there was another charter flights from Moosney, Fort Albany, Attawapiskat, picking up workers. Many people in Attawapiskat were ineligible to get a job at the mine because they had dropped out of high school. The most direct benefit that Attawapiskat was getting, $2 million a year paid to the band council for a trust fund, only amounted to 0.5% of De Beers' revenues from the mine. And that money wasn't close to enough to provide the infrastructure that people in Attawapiskat desperately needed. I'll put it this way. De Beers is an international company that had never operated in Canada before. And so I think De Beers was just totally unprepared on their end to really understand the complexity of the problem. And their job is to go in and get the mine going as soon as possible and offer benefits that the mining business industry offers, which is jobs and business contracts. By 2009, Mike Kustachin was determined to stand up to De Beers. We had this diamond mine, the richest company in the world, and diamonds is the hot commodity. They, they said that the diamonds being extracted from the De Beers Victor mine were the, the rarest in the world. Uh, they didn't tell us how much it was produced. So there was, there was no accountability. There was no accountability. Mike 
alongside other community members, decided to blockade the road to the Victor Mine in the dead of winter. Over 50 people showed up. Mike was the first one there. It was nerve-wracking, and uh, people were scared to go to jail. The OPP was called in, but De Beers and the blockaders were able to come to a good-faith agreement to end the standoff after 18 days. It was a small victory, but things in Attawapiskat were about to go from bad to worse. The housing crisis in Attawapiskat has gripped the country's attention. It has been described as a disaster in slow motion. The roots of the Attawapiskat housing crisis go back a long way. But according to some people in the community, one of the proximate causes can be traced to De Beers. Here's Jackie Hukuma talking to APTN News in 2011. My father, he noticed at 3 in the morning at that time um, th there was a big awful smell and something was leaking in their basement. A sewage backup flooded the dirt basement floors of a number of homes, including Hukuma's parents. So this incident happened in March 2005 and uh, what happened at that time also, uh, the beers, the mining company, they disposed their sewer sludge into the community's lift station. APTN was able to confirm her story with documents. The Ontario First Nations Technical Services was called in to assess the situation in 2005. Engineers found that what is currently known is that De Beers discharged a load of sewage into the pumping station. This might have precipitated the overloading of the pumping station, thereby causing the sewage backup. Engineers told the federal government about the problems with the pump control panel, saying that it could fail at any time. But nothing was done. And then... In 2009, the sewage system backed up once again. This time, the consequences were much worse. On July 11th, sewage overflowed into eight different buildings where 90 people lived. The federal and provincial governments refused to help, and the Attawapiskat Band Council was forced to evacuate the people themselves because they had nowhere to stay. De Beers provided some emergency trailers to be used by people who had to evacuate but the situation continued to deteriorate. A significant chunk of the community just had nowhere to go. For two full years, the Attawapiskat First Nation lobbied everyone, the provincial government, the federal government, De Beers, to do something. But by October 2011, Attawapiskat Chief Teresa Spence was forced to declare a state of emergency. The declaration, along with video footage shot by NDP MP Charlie Angus, who represents the region, finally got the country's attention. So there's the two grandparents, a little granddaughter, and no running water, no toilet. You have to use a bucket for the ditches. That's that's the yeah. situation here? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And she's eight years old, 80 years old and her husband's 85. 80 and 85. Wow. Those images were really disturbing. So it shot into the national spotlight. And for many Canadians, this was their first wake-up call about the conditions in remote communities, the housing conditions, and that dominated the news. Living conditions made headlines recently in the small Atawapiskat community on James Bay when it was found that people were living in tents, shacks, and trailers in temperatures of minus 20 degrees Celsius. Atawapiskat was now an international story but the Harper government responded mainly by questioning how federal money was being spent by the Band Council, claiming that the federal government gave $90 million to them since 2006. 
the $90 million came out to only around $11,000 per person per year. Regardless, the Conservative government placed Attawapiskat under a third-party manager. The decision was overturned by a judge, but the crisis in Attawapiskat and the federal government's apparent disdain for the community was again in the spotlight the next year when during the Idle No More protests, Chief Teresa Spence engaged in a hunger strike near Parliament Hill. I remember the morning that she was starting and I, I went down to Victoria Island and I, I think there was probably only like a dozen of people there. And I remember like talking to her on camera. She's like, I'm not going to talk to the media anymore. <laughs> and then it really like blew up and she, she kind of had no choice. That was really impressive was the thousands, thousands of people that came and started from where she was hunger striking on Victoria Island and marched to Parliament Hill. She got a lot of hate online, but she kept going and she inspired a lot of people. At one point, she might have been like the most hated woman in this country. Her hunger strike came to an end after six weeks. Though she was able to get the AFN, the NDP and the Liberals to sign on to a number of commitments, the Harper government conceded little. But then, only a few years later, Attawapiskat was again front page news. People on the remote First Nation of Attawapiskat say the spate of suicide attempts started last October with the death of a 13-year-old girl. They say since then, dozens of the community's 1,800 people have attempted suicide, culminating in 11 attempts in one night last week. Healthcare workers in the region were overwhelmed, and the provincial and federal government provided emergency mental health teams. Again and again, Attawapiskat was the biggest story in the country. But there was one thing that only rarely came up. In that whole conversation, De Beers was hardly mentioned. So how did De Beers respond to these rolling emergencies in the community right next door to their mine? Here's Tom Ormsby, the former head of PR for De Beers Canada, speaking to the CBC. We're not responsible for you know, infrastructure and education and building schools and, and things like that. It's not. In Canada, we've got a fairly stable democracy. We've got good economic performance in general. So there's a government that is you know, tasked to do that. From the De Beers perspective, they're here in Canada. They're not doing a mine in Papua New Guinea where you might, maybe you'd have to build a school. Like this is a developed country. And they came here and I think in their own documents were actually kind of alarmed themselves at the level of underdevelopment that they were encountering in the community. And in some ways, they do have a point. The Canadian and Ontarian governments have the money to pay for what Attawapiskat needs, and they neglected to make those investments long before De Beers got there. And the provincial government made a lot of money from the Victor mine. Mining actually pays for the schools and the infrastructure for us here if you don't live on a reserve. So that Victor mine paid royalties and taxes that were collected by the province of Ontario that went in and helped build hospitals and schools and all those things that communities need. But those royalties didn't go to Attawapiskat. Instead, the community got a pittance of what it really needs and deserves. And during the time the mine was active, De Beers was thriving. Just a single 102-carat diamond mined at the Victor mine sold for around $20 million. That's more than all of the payments De Beers made to Attawapiskat First Nation. Sure, De Beers hadn't promised to build schools or houses, but what they did promise was that the economic activity generated by the Victor mine would help develop Attawapiskat. And it's clear that just didn't happen 
not in the way that people were envisioning when the deal was initially signed. In some cases, when I talked to people in the community, they were told that their standard of living was going to be raised to the rest of the Canada. And depending on who you talk to and what metric they're, they're using, in some ways, the situation in the community is worse. There was new houses built. There was a new school built finally, but those were all federal investments that really had no relationship at all to the mine and any economic development that came from that. Even De Beers itself has acknowledged that things could have gone better. In 2018, just before the mine was closing, the CEO of De Beers, I have his quote right here, I can't help wondering whether the formula should be modified and whether we seek to connect people more with the benefits, adding that include giving First Nations direct ownership in mining projects. So that's the CEO himself of the De Beers mine while it's closing down, being like, oh, I think maybe this permutation didn't really work for the community like we thought it was going to. But De Beers never did reopen the impact benefit agreement. After all, it was a good deal for them. There is at least one lasting legacy of the Victor mine, methyl mercury. According to Anna Baggio from Wildlands League, after a lot of negotiations, De Beers had actually agreed to address methyl mercury levels before the mine was built. When they finally gave De Beers the permit, there were some really good conditions on the permit. So good that we were kind of like, oh, I guess I guess we have to kind of let this go now. The conditions seem pretty reasonable. The government had tasked De Beers with monitoring the methyl mercury levels themselves and publicly sharing that information. But one of Anna's colleagues soon discovered something was wrong. He very quickly realized that De Beers was failing to report on five out of the nine surface water monitoring stations. And then as he dug deeper, he realized that it was the downstream ones they weren't reporting on. And so all of this was sending up alarm bells. Eventually, EcoJustice initiated a private prosecution against De Beers for not monitoring and releasing their mercury levels. The legal proceedings took years, but this summer, De Beers pled guilty to one count of failing to provide mercury monitoring data. Anna says that she's glad to see some accountability but it demonstrates just how difficult it is to get action against mining companies. And so if that's the kind of level that we needed to do to chase it down, it doesn't bode well for the public. How's the public supposed to have any confidence? It also doesn't bode well for these individual communities that have these mines in their backyards. Mike Kustachin says that at the end of the day, the De Beers mine just didn't live up to its promises. Nobody's being responsible. The resources that are being depleted from that resource extractions and somebody's Profited. What did the community surrounding the mine benefit? Nothing. It's all contaminated. They can restore. The Victor Diamond Mine closed in 2018. But tensions still remain between De Beers and Attawapiskat. The First Nation is opposing plans by De Beers to build a dump on Attawapiskat land that includes sacred and culturally important sites. Today, housing still isn't adequate in Attawapiskat. Suicide rates are still high, and community members still don't have access to clean drinking water. There's only one place in the James Bay lowlands that has had continuous access to safe, clean drinking water, and that was the De Beers Victor Mine. And it has been built and demolished in a decade. So what are we to make of all of this? De Beers didn't create most of the problems facing the community. Those have their roots in the legacy of colonialism. And De Beers was far from the most predatory mining company you'll hear about on this series. 
but resource development, especially mining, has long been pitched to northern indigenous communities as a way to spur on development. And it's clear that in Attawapiskat, that just didn't happen. A lot of money was made at the Victor Diamond Mine, for De Beers and for the provincial government. But Attawapiskat First Nation and other surrounding First Nations weren't directly involved in the project. And I think because of what's happened in Attawapiskat, there should be a greater burden to really, really understand what the environmental impacts were, how they were monitored, like how they were communicated to the community, what say the community ultimately had in the end, how negotiation was done, was it fair? And I think there needs to be sort of a whole new model as well, like Indigenous ownership. And I think that is really key. The communities who are most affected by mining need to have a seat at the table and get a greater share of the benefits. And in fact, there is one good example of that principle working in action. De Beers itself. Today, some of De Beers' biggest mines are in the southern African country of Botswana. In the 1970s, when diamond mining really started to take off in the country, the Botswanan government demanded large royalties and taxes for diamonds. Today, the government even owns 15% of De Beers itself, and around 84% of revenues stay in the country. Botswana was able to use that money to build itself up into a middle-income country. That was the dream sold to Attawapiskat. But instead of the 84% of revenues, Attawapiskat got a meager 0.5%. Until those kinds of deals fundamentally change, there's no way that mining can benefit communities like Attawapiskat. For Mike Kustachin, the legacy of the De Beers mine is not one of development. I'm not worried about jobs. What I'm worried about is the water, my future, my young people, my children yet to be born. What are they going to benefit? Are we going to lose the food that was given to us by Creator? That is our livelihood. That's what sustained us long before the beers. Reporting on the Victor mine has changed Vicky Lane's relationship to diamonds. I would never wear a diamond. I do not want a diamond. It's so fraught. What I came out of the experience in making the project was just how, in some ways, peripheral mining is to many deep-seated issues related to the community's treaty relationship with the province and the government, and how fraught even the government's claim is to getting kind of royalty and tax revenue. And, and it's about like really our own economic privilege, like how much we outside of non-Indigenous communities are financially benefiting from these mines and how complicit that wealth truly is in like a lot of the poverty in the North. Today, the Ontario government is pushing to develop the so-called Ring of Fire, which is full of massive mineral deposits in northern Ontario. Mike Kustachin is worried what will happen if these projects are approved. 
with the mine being proposed with the ring of fire, there's five, four elements that the resources they're extracting. Nickel, zinc, and the coronium. Coronium is the, the one that's poisonous. It's cancerous. We have prophecies that the mines will come our way and that the prophecy is to going to destroy the land. It's the environment that's going to be impacted. And we, we have a history. We see it. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. Know someone who loves our podcasts? You can now gift a subscription. Head over to canadaland.com gift and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Victoria Lane, Ozzy Michelin at APT News, Alanis Obamsuin, Ed Caesar at The New Yorker, Edward J. Epstein in The Atlantic, Adrian Arsenault at CBC News, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at candleland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.